0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast. We're able to deep dive into the sermon content from Sunday without the limitation of time. Thanks for joining us. We are in a series called Binge the Bible, where we are reading the Bible in six months, and this is season one, episode two. And uh, we're loving the feedback that we're getting from everybody and excited for the engagement and the questions that are coming our way. And we look forward to getting into some of the topics and questions. Uh, that came our way this past week. We'll be covering uh, Genesis chapter 31 through to Exodus 35, and we'll kind of meander all the way through the end of Exodus, even though that wasn't part of our reading for this particular period, but uh, at this point, everyone who's following along has probably read that. In fact, you probably are into the first bit of Leviticus if you are keeping up with us real time. Next week, we're going to be covering uh, Exodus 36, if there's anything left over, all the way through the end of Leviticus, the whole book. But there will be no Sunday sermon, because if you're following with us uh, in real time, the last Sunday of January is Fifth Sunday Funday. So we don't have a sermon planned. Uh, The next sermon will be on February the 5th, but we'll be reading through all of Leviticus and Numbers by the time we get to that Sunday. So there'll be a lot to cover, and uh, don't let our lack of a Sunday service stop you from sending in your questions on the book of Leviticus, and thank you to Alan D., who already sent us in a bunch of questions, really good questions, for uh, next week's podcast, which we will record midweek, even though there's no Sunday sermon. So stay tuned with us, and we're going to jump in. I think I'm going to start each subsequent podcast with a section I call, I Stand Corrected. So, thank you for those of you who are listening carefully enough to catch me uh, saying the wrong thing. So, I did mention the way uh, that God, in his holiness, consumed the strange fire of the prophet or the high priest's sons. And somehow Hophni and Phinehas slipped out instead of Nadab and Abihu. And Hophni and Phinehas, of course, are the rebellious sons of the priest Eli much further on in the book. And they are, in fact, more evil and not judged. And so, we'll get to that uh, when we get into that section. For Samuel. But yes, in fact, that was Nadab and Abihu, not Hophni and Phinehas. So thank you. And feel free to send more questions or corrections uh, as we take this journey together. All right, let's jump in. So we are going to kind of rewind the tape a little bit back into the back half of the book of Genesis. And a couple of the questions we had were pertaining to The end of Jacob's life and the kind of switch hand blessing that he places on Joseph's two sons, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, who from this point forward become Ephraim and Manasseh. So this is a theme that we follow through the scriptures where the blessing of God doesn't always flow directly through the person who has a perennial right uh, to that blessing. So this is why we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. In the story of Genesis, it appears that uh, Esau gave up his birthright, and he was tricked out of it, and that Jacob and his mother um, were being deceptive to steal the blessing of of Esau to Jacob. But the reality is, we see in the scripture later on, that it was God's sovereign choice to direct this blessing, not to Esau, but specifically to Jacob, Malachi is going to tell us that Jacob, have I loved, and Esau, have I hated. Not to say emotionally hated, but has preferred one to the other. And so the blessing was directed by God. And so throughout the Bible, we're going to see this pattern of a skipping over of the firstborn. And that occurs with Jacob in the blessing of Joseph's sons, Manasseh, which of course means granted. This is the first son born to Joseph in Egypt um, by the daughter of the priest Potipharah the Egyptian. And then his second son uh, born Ephraim, which means fruitful. And it's Jacob, who was the second born twin who received the blessing that in his old age crosses his hands to bless Ephraim with the right hand and Manasseh with the left. And Joseph, of course, tries to undo this to say, oh, no, no, this isn't the right order. And he says, nope, this is the right order. In fact, from this point forward, um, these two are going to be known in reverse order as uh, the half tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And that's what happens. And that kind of brings us into the section of the end-of-life prophecies uh, of Jacob and the different things he says about the different tribes. And it's important uh, as you read through Joshua especially, and you start to see the the um, conquest into Canaan and the way these things spread out. And then through the Judges, a lot of the things that you're going to observe happening in the book of Judges and in Joshua are going to be fulfillments of the prophecies um, given by Jacob over his sons. Of course, the most important is the one for Judah, where he says the scepter will not pass from Judah. We mentioned that in the last podcast. So look out for that. Um, you're going to see those things. You may have read past those and and, and thought, oh, that's, some of this is bad, some of it's in the middle, some of it's good. Uh, but really, it ends up describing what takes place um, when the inheritance of the promised land is passed out. So reference back to that when we get into those sections of the reading. One of the things uh, that I absolutely loved and stood out to me in my reading, and maybe you experienced this as well, was in the early chapters of Exodus when God is calling Moses and Moses objects. I know some of you were mentioning that to me. Okay, so Moses is called by God. He, he sees the burning bush, and he approaches in curiosity. He's told to take off his shoes. He's on holy ground, and God begins to speak to him and identifies him as his chosen deliverer. And as I mentioned in the Sunday sermon, um, not this week, but last, if you're reading that, you're thinking, yeah, Moses is the guy. Like, He's obviously the person who can have access to Pharaoh's house, and he speaks Egyptian. He understands how these things work. He has personal relationships with everybody in Pharaoh's household, and he's a Hebrew. Uh, He's in a position of prominence, and he's been chosen by God. Um, He speaks both languages. He knows both cultures. Like, If there ever was a person to stand in the gap between the Israelites and the Egyptians, uh, it would be Moses. And yet Moses is quite convinced that he's not that person. And, you know, we read this in just a couple brief chapters from his birth narrative to this encounter with God. But um, he's eighty years old at this point. Like he's had a whole generational life in Egypt up to about age 40, and then he's run as a refugee. He started a whole new life over. He's taken a wife, he's had children, he has a new career, no one knows who he is. He's living in anonymity. Um, he's he's thinking that he has a bounty on his head in Egypt, like nothing in his world is saying, hey, why don't you go back to Egypt and get in Pharaoh's face and and uh, become the self-proclaimed leader of this people who uh, didn't respect you then and probably won't now. And so like any of us, it's very human, his responses, um, his responses. And, and so you get this First objection in Exodus three, who will I say sent me, which is of course an amazing setup for God to begin to reveal himself as the great I am, and that that title that yahweh tetragrammaton y h w h however it's pronounced um becomes this this continued expansion welcoming into a covenant relationship with God, you know him truly, but an expansion of the description of god and 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 connections to all these other names of God that begin to develop throughout the story. And so that's something else you want to be looking for is um, who is God? Who is God to you? Who do you know him as? And how have you come to know him through the experiences that you've had? And so that's his first objection. The the second objection is that they won't believe me. And so God gives him these multiple signs with his staff and the leprous hand and Uh, pouring water on the ground and it turning to blood. He's like, here's some proofs that I'm with you. And these are like, these are not parlor tricks. I mean, this is like heavy duty, supernatural stuff. And so here's my name. Here's who you tell them, sent you. Here's these proofs that you're my prophet. And then the third objection, he just says, I'm not equipped for this. Like I can't, I I don't have the goods like in and of myself. And I think um, from a less intellectual and kind of a a more personal perspective, I think we all kind of go through the same type of argument with God when we are encountering him personally and then accessing a sense of our calling is at first there's this, like, I don't know enough. I don't know you well enough. Um, who, what am I supposed to say? Will the words be there? And so there can be this inherent insufficiency in your sense of your relationship with God. And, and really, if you're following the Lord and you're walking in your calling, that never actually goes away. You always feel like there's more to be known and there's more to grow. And and there's a humility and independence that comes From God being God and you being his servant, and regardless of where it is you are in that development. And so I think it's a very normal and natural thing. And I think it's something to look to Moses and and see his humanness, and then also recognize God's persistence in his pursuit to give him an answer to that question. And not only that, but to overcome his second objection. Um, and give him these signs and God does that for us too Uh, he does things for us that are impossible he puts us in impossible situations and then he calls us to be faithful and then he provides and he moves in a miraculous manner uh, by which we are uh, affirmed in our faith and then also that it justifies the ministry that God has called us into and so if you're doing what God's called you to do you probably have those some of those miracle stories as well maybe not a leper's hand from your jacket (laughs) maybe not a staff that turns into a, a snake or Uh, water that turns to blood, but you'll have those stories that, you know, God called me to do this thing. It was humanly impossible. There was all these obstacles and yet he moved miraculously. And that's certainly the case for me as well. And then all of us, when we seek to engage in what God's called us to do, we're going to have that same objection of, I am, I don't have what it takes. And part of that, part of that can just be fear. It can, it can be us not recognizing what everybody else can see. If there's a calling or an anointing on your life, But part of it is like what God calls each of us into is more than we can handle. And that's part of the point. We're supposed to be working with him, cooperating with him, and making ourselves willing vessels to be able to use by God uh, in a way that he gets the glory. And so that Moses was not eloquent of speech, that he was a stutterer or whatever. It's hard to say from the Hebrew exactly what his problem was, but he did not see himself as a good communicator. And yet God pairs him with his his eloquent brother, and who becomes the high priest, Aaron. And so God's always moving. Now, the thing that may have stood out to you that you did not notice, a lot of people said to me, actually three or four people said to me, I never realized that after all of those objections where God gets burning mad, answers all of Moses' objections, and then sends him into Egypt, that on the way he intended to kill him. In Exodus chapter 4, the Moses, uh, God was going to kill Moses. What? <laughs> what is going on here? And so there's, there's a lot missing from this interaction that has to be pieced together. Um, The most notable feature is where Moses' son Gershom is circumcised. And the reality here is while there wasn't a Mosaic law at this point, the sign of circumcision had been given in Genesis to Abraham um, years into his covenant following of the Lord and in in, uh, expectation of the coming of Isaac. And so Abraham and every male in his household is circumcised and then Isaac is circumcised on the eighth day. And that certainly would have passed to Jacob and to Jacob's sons all the way down to Moses. So this would have been a, a Hebrew ritual that had not been enshrined in law yet, but would have been the, um, the sign of inclusion into the nation of God. And this is a picture of Moses having thrown off his old life and in a way backslidden away from his historic faith. And now he has an intermarriage with the Midianites' pr- priest's daughter, and a son who uh, apparently his wife had an objection to the circumcision taking place. And instead of Moses standing up to say, no, this is the identity of this son of mine, and he is carrying this covenant of God, he gave into the wife's preference. And so she is, she's the one who actually um, circumcises Gershom, I and mean, we're not sure of his age at this point, And says to Moses, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so there's this, um, there's this rift. And it doesn't actually say at this point that she left him, but it's intimated because later on, after they've made the Exodus, um, she comes back with Moses's sons and her father, and they're all reunited in Exodus 18. And so it would appear that it was, it was Moses's action of not circumcising his son that had God's opposition. uh, And that there was some intervention there, the details of which we do not have. And that was when uh, his wife departed from him, and then he meets up with Aaron next. So yeah, it's an interesting feature of the story, and I think one, like the end where Moses is denied access into the promised land, begins to highlight for us that there will never be another prophet like Moses, but he's also still not the perfect mediator that we require. And so you're going to see things like that pop up throughout the storyline of the scripture, and they just speak to the fact that, you know, a better son, a better Israel is needed, a better high priest is needed, a better king is needed. And uh, this is one of those instances. So great question, good observation. I love that we're reading at that level and seeing things we've never seen before. So the next kind of section, and Bill, Bill's joining us today too. If you have any interjections, feel free to speak up. Sure will. Um, the, the next kind of section that we wanted to talk through were um, the plagues in Egypt. So maybe maybe uh, these were things that you had, you know, seen the Prince of Egypt before, you watched the Charleston Heston Ten Commandments, uh, you have some familiar, familiarity visually uh, with how this took place. But reading it leaves some some questions unanswered. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of those questions as well. Um, now, obviously, there's a lot of them. Uh, the thing that stood out to me was the question of time interval between plagues. So the narrative just reads like a story, but there isn't any embedded time interval until you get to the Passover, in which it says the first day of the month, and then it says for 10 days. And so there's this, okay, there's a couple weeks in here before the Passover week begins and the angel of death comes, and that's the first time indicator that there is some passing of time between the, the, the ninth and the 10th plague. However, there's obviously some other implications that there's been a passage of time. For instance, when all of the pestilence comes and kills all the livestock uh, livestock of Egypt and then the Israelites' livestock is untouched, then there's no livestock in Egypt. And, and then shortly there after in the next plague, we read that the Egyptians made a sacrifice. And you're like, okay, well, where did the livestock come from for the sacrifice? So did were there more were there infants that were born? Were there a purchase that took place between the Egyptians and the Israelites? How much time had passed by? And we really don't have any indication. And the reason that stuck out to me is because the main question that all of us grapple with going through this series of plagues is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So if we're if we're intellectually honest and part of our um, post-Reformation struggling uh, intellectual modernists, all, all of us are kind of grappling with this cosmic dilemma between the sovereignty of God and human free will or human agency. And so this is one of those classic questions to go, okay, well, if we have a sovereign God who can do whatever he wants and we're powerless against him, then are we really free or are we really culpable even for judgment? And so Pharaoh is exhibit A. So Pharaoh is the most powerful human on the planet, uh, nearly deified, if not completely deified in the mind of his people, certainly culturally godlike and uh, divine, at least in a lesser God kind of a way. And so he has all the power, he has all the control, he has all of the wealth. And uh, he is working against the purposes of God and doing atrocities with his position, power. And so God decides He is going to, at this point in time, deliver His people out of slavery in Egypt and out from underneath of the tyranny of Pharaoh. And in the moment that God expresses that His plan to Moses, it is as good as done. And so this is the part that I want to kind of draw people's attention to because it does say again and again and again that God was going to, and then did harden Pharaoh's heart. And so this is not, this is not a, you give God the, the, um, the pass. Oh may, well, maybe Pharaoh was, he was had a hard heart anyway. And no, it literally says that repeatedly. Um, God says that uh, to Moses in Exodus four twenty one, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, and there's that if, behold, I will kill your firstborn son, which is the final of the 10 plagues. And so the purpose of God is stated at the outset and the power of God against Pharaoh in order to bring about God's full circle, expressed judgment in the 10 plagues, ending in the death of the firstborn is laid out from the very beginning. And the reality here is that the judgment of God was just against Pharaoh before he ever started engaging with Pharaoh on the release of his people. And you're going to see this um, clues of this in the scriptures. For instance, the, the Israelites are in Egypt and God is keeping them in the desert for multiple reasons. One is he's revealing himself to them in new ways. Two is he's building for himself a people with a with a collective identity because they don't have one um, three he's working out the unfaithful from among them and building faith into the next generation, but he's also delaying entry into the land of Canaan because one of the verses in late Genesis tells us that the the iniquity of the Amorites had not yet reached fulfillment, and so it would have been unjust of God to bring the expulsion uh, and and the execution of those. Uh, people groups in Canaan until they had reached deserving it, and so there's a delay that's happening there too. One of the things that you're going to see emerge throughout the scriptures is that although there is a lot of violence and a lot of death, and some of it is at God's hands, God is not unjust. God does not leave—God leaves room for repentance, and God is not unjust, but when the time for judgment comes, whether that comes swiftly in a moment or through a series of ten plagues by which God is fulfilling another purpose— The judgment of God is indeed just. And so, you know, God could have allowed Pharaoh to let his people go, but then people would not have understood the power of God specifically over the gods of Egypt. And this is one of the things that if you don't know a little bit about uh, ancient Egyptian culture, then you really wouldn't understand the purpose of the 10 plagues in the first place. So Bill.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, You know, the Lord like even with the cattle and the other things that he says he's going to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Like they're two separate things and God's not just up there watching as everything transpires. He's in it. He's active. He's like, just like you said, the the Jewish people are his people. And then he's going to pass judgment on the Egyptians and their gods. uh, He says explicitly in the text.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's in the text to say they're gods. And a lot of us don't know what those gods are. Um, and so, like, doing a little bit of research on your own in addition to your Bible reading, you can easily find out what this, uh, what this information is. So, you know, there's the 10 plagues, the blood, frogs, gnats, flies, pestilence on livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. Um, but a lot of people have never heard that each of these plagues have a connection to various Egyptian gods. So, for instance, the plague of blood was against Hopi and Osiris, and these are the Egyptian gods of the Nile. And so here God is demonstrating his power over the Nile gods by turning the life-giving Nile to blood. And you are going to see some of these themes develop later too. in and, uh, restrictions in Leviticus, God's going to say multiple times, the life is in the blood. Now the, the, the Nile was literally the life of Egypt. It was what was bringing prosperity and growth and fruitfulness and flourishing both agriculturally and in human flourishing. And so they deified that, that natural occurrence with these false gods and here god is showing his power to instantly um to just cut that off and so that happens with frogs against Haket, who's the egyptian egyptian god of fertility and if you'd seen a picture of of Haket, it's like a multi like a man's shoulders and then it's got a frog's head and so like the the frog is associated with this fertility god god's like you want to see fertility watch this <laughs> here's here's more frogs than you can handle And, um, so the, and the list goes on and on and on. One of the most uh, infamous Egyptian gods is Ra. If you watch any of the like history channel stuff, you're going to hear all about Ra and that's the God of the sun. And of course, what's the plague before the death of firstborn is darkness. And so God's showing his power against even the sun in the sky that they associated with Ra. So these are, these are 10 purposeful, um, judgments of God against the false gods of Egypt showing his supremacy to his people in his deliverance. And you'll notice, like Bill said, that is the third plague. You start to see a distinction in the experience of the Israelites and the Egyptians. And in fact, that here's a spoiler alert. I mean, this is where Leviticus is going. Leviticus is all about bringing God's people into the wilderness and then retraining them to see themselves as distinct. And so there was a distinction made between the Egyptians and the Israelites, but then God is going to teach his people how to live in a way that makes them distinct among the peoples of the earth in a way that represents God, that God is holy. And so this is Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19:2. be holy as I am holy.
1: Yeah, And I love how um, like the magicians of the Egyptians are able to replicate the first couple things that Moses does. They're like, oh yeah, we can do that too, it's fine. But then and then God goes above and beyond and they are unable to replicate the later things that Moses does to to show them that God is God and not the, the Egyptian gods that they're serving. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it's really good. That's
0: really cool. And I love too, like, we ask these questions, we go, okay, well, how powerful is God if at the beginning of his deliverance, the, you know, these sorcerers can do the exact same thing? Like, but, but you'll recall, like, you know, the staff is thrown down, and the sorcerers come out and they do the same thing, and the staffs are all snakes, but then it's Moses' staff consumes the other staffs and eats them like there's the demonstration of supremacy, but it's also a reminder like we live in a dark world that has otherworldly powers at work that are not God and can can present a false God, like that's the point, like each of these gods is a false God, and just because the these sorcerers are able to contrive some of these signs as substitutes, they're not supreme. And so this is part of the whole series of plagues is to make that point. The biggest point is Israel is my firstborn son. And so I'm going, I release my firstborn son. And if you don't, I'm gonna kill your firstborn son. And then of course, all of this is heading towards God's offer of his firstborn son as a sacrifice for sin for the world, Egyptians and Israelites alike. And so this is not a description of a violent and vengeful Old Testament deity that is somehow different from the God that we know today. These things are recorded for us to show the judgment of God, the supremacy of God, and to set for us a picture that is going to allow us to make sense of the love of God in the self-sacrificing death of his own son to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and to redeem us out of slavery to sin, and to bring us into a position of being able to know him truly and be distinct in the world. And so, while this may come across to us as, you know, violent and disconnected, really it is the world is evil and God's God's putting up with this world because he has a purpose to bring salvation to all people, and he will bring judgment whether that's a worldwide flood or a series of plagues, and it's not unjust judgment. It's not arbitrary violence. This is this is a evil world where evil things are being done. And God has been patient for his purposes. But when his patience comes to an end, there is judgment. And God is going to supersede even human agency in order to fulfill his purpose and make a revelation. And the revelation, I mean, we'll see what passage this was. Um, yeah, it's Exodus 7, 1 to 5. This is one of the places that God says he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But listen to what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The point of God's judgment is always that people would come to know who he is. And sometimes people would rather be aligned with their own inward, broken, sin-sick desires or under the power of the enemy and reject God. But God is always moving even in judgment for divine revelation, not only for his people. But for all the nations, that's where this started in Genesis 12, and that's where it's going to end in Revelations 5 and 7.
1: Yeah, and I love how uh, even when they're wandering in the wilderness, that the the people of the wilderness will say are have like heard of God's great judgments on Egypt, and they're like, "Hey, you're you're the people of the God that we've heard of." We don't we either a they're like, "Hey, we don't want to mess with you, or we don't want you in our land, or however like." But the word. Of God's judgment had spread even farther than He just described in the passage you read. Like it was for for uh, Israel and for Egypt, and now we have even all the people in the Promised Land are, have heard of God and who He is. Well,
0: that's an awesome part of the story, and it's it, it juxtaposed too of like our unbelief. So you have the Israelites who are trembling at the end of Numbers to go into the land, and it's only Joshua and Caleb who are saying, "No, we can do this. Let's go." They have faith in God, and. Little do they know it's the dread of God and God's people that's on the people who are in that land in the first place. And so, yes, that news, that news of God's judgment and God's deliverance and God's uh, protection and calling of this special people had spread uh, like wildfire even generations later. And so that's beautiful. And it's part of the seeing the unfolding story, which is why I love reading the Bible at this pace, because just days apart from understanding something that happened hundreds of years before You're seeing its prophetic fulfillment or its implications in the future. It's awesome. So a couple of the other questions we got were in uh, relation to judgment and tests. So this is a piece of the sermon on Sunday that we couldn't really get into. Um, But this is all about testing and God's revealing faith and the lack of faith. And he's showing himself to be uh, trustworthy in all of these tests. So in... Exodus 16, we looked at the manna test where God's saying, um, here's manna from heaven to the grumbling of his, of his people. But then he gives them the test of Sabbath. And you're going to see that, um, cycle throughout Exodus. Um, I mentioned this when we did this in the hot topic series about the Sabbath. And this is still, I'm, I'm, I'm going to invite a friend of mine who's a Sabbatarian. Uh, Rich Tidwell is going to join us for a, a special podcast specifically on the Sabbath. That's, that's going to be coming. Um, and, and him and I have come to different conclusions about Sabbath and Sunday worship and what those mean and how they, how they work through the the scriptures, but it's a fascinating conversation. And I've been getting some questions about that from people, but the Sabbath among the 10 commandments, and again, number 10, 10 plagues, judgment test revelation of God, 10 commandments. This is, this is a test of faith and a judgment of what is good and evil and those who keep God's testimony and those who reject it. And at the center of the Ten Commandments is the command to keep Sabbath, which is the commandment that requires faith. It does not make sense, and it does not have an internal, intuitive sense of self-approval. So if if the command is to not murder, and I'm restricted from taking the life of another person, I have an inherent self-interest in being in a community where murder is illegal because I don't want to be murdered. <laughs> if, if, if I'm commanded not to commit adultery, there's a self-interest that I want to be in a covenant relationship where I am safe from my spouse committing adultery. And so these restrictions um, all the way through the Ten Commandments are distinct from Sabbath, which just says God rested and made this day holy, and now you must observe it as holy. And it doesn't make sense. Now, in retrospect, we see a lot of the ways it makes sense, especially in this slavery to freedom motif. If you're a slave and you're made to work constantly with no days off, having a day off rhythmically and creating this weak rhythm of work and rest gives you dignity as a human being. It sets you free in a way to, to not have to work uh, or be enslaved to any other persons. And so it, it's, a, it's a very exalting gift from God to provide human dignity and equality. Um, it's also an opportunity for us to trust because when we cease from work and we cease from providing for ourselves and, and accomplishing for ourselves, we are made to then uh, trust in God. And so the Sabbath theme is not just one day of the week, but it's also a Sabbath rest for the land. It's a course of seven years. It's a course of the Jubilee cycle of the 50th year after seven sets of seven And so there's these many different ways. There's multiple Sabbath days that are special Sabbaths that aren't on a Saturday, but they start or conclude a feast. And so God's going to give lots of Sabbath rests and it's opportunities for his people to be self-dignified and be free, but also to recognize God and have faith towards him. And so Sabbath is a specific faith-centric command. And you're going to see as you read through the entirety of Exodus, if you haven't already— that whenever God is going to reconnect with his people who have broken his covenant, he starts with a observe the Sabbath. And so that happens in the, the 30s chapters of Exodus as well, in the reestablishment of the covenant. I think it's Exodus 34, 35. And so that's, that's a theme you'll continue to see, um, even through the minor prophets. When the minor prophets come to speak judgment against Israel, the command is to observe the Sabbaths. And to do it wholeheartedly, not you observe the Sabbath, but you've got a whole crew of slaves working for you and getting your work done and you're profiting at other people's expense. That's not observing the Sabbath. And so this is a way of you saying, I trust God and his ways, and I'm going to trust in his provision, and I'm going to trust him as God and not myself, and I'm going to treat other people and myself with human dignity and not fall into the pitfall that is objectifying humans uh, in slavery and other practices. And so that, that's a theme that continues to develop. Uh, in the tests. And there was some some great questions about that. So the other questions we got uh, had to do with the design elements of the tabernacle. Um, I, I gave you guys permission to skim those chapters because you start reading uh, a lot of the uh, repetitious uh, design elements and it's said, and then it's said, they use the exact same framework and long paragraphs to describe what God said and then uh, what the people did. And it's exactly the same. Now, obviously this this section of scripture was originally given to an illiterate people who relied on oral tradition. And so there's a lot of repetition for the purpose of memory. So you're going to hear these things told in gatherings where there's one person who has one set of scrolls and has reading as frequently as every week or maybe even more so. And so it's through the hearing of these things and the repetition of them that you start to hang on to the content. And so that's a feature of, um, ancient literature that's intended for a majorly, majorly, I should say, oral environment. And so we can skim past that and it doesn't hurt anything, but you want to make sure you're not missing any of the really special parts. Like one of the things you'll miss when you skim is when there's repetition, 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 but something is missing and you're actually supposed to notice what's not there. And if you skim, you won't see that. And that happens a lot in the scripture. So look out for that. So let's just talk a little bit about the design elements of the tabernacle. So here, God has gone to great effort to describe to Moses exactly how this tabernacle should be built, its shape, design, floor plan, rooms, dimensions, and then the elements, furniture and furnishings um, and finishes. So um, you can Google like what did the tabernacle look like? And it's really kind of not impressive on the outside. It's uh, it's built for, uh, it's for utility and durability, um, but its floor plan has has um, some meaning. So you have this kind of rectangular shaped courtyard where a lot of people can fit and there's a sequential um, insulation of the holiness of God. And then there are steps that are given to for people to be able to come closer and closer to God and further and further and further limitation for who can come how close as a representative of the whole. And that's the main feature that you're gonna get of the presence of God in the tabernacle. And that's the way Exodus chapter 40 ends, where the glory of God descends on the tabernacle and specifically in the most holy place. And it's so the presence of God is so heavy that even Moses, who's repeatedly welcomed into God's presence and ha- sees these appearances of God, even is in God's presence and only has his face hidden to preserve his life. I mean, this is the guy who is in God's presence and his face is shining. It's emitting light because of him being in God's presence. This guy can't go in because of how heavy the presence of God is in that particular place. And from this point forward, the only person who can go in, is permitted to go in, is the high priest, and once a year, and we're going to see that in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. And so here you're seeing the a miraculous presence of God among his people, right there in the middle. He's literally camping out with his people. The God who made everything is in this unimpressive tent inside of this rectangular fence but on the inside of the temple the finishes are as ornate as is conceivable for ancient near eastern people the blues and the purples and the embroidery and the carving and the gold overlays and the acacia wood and the the draperies and the i mean this is like this is like the most incredible temple throne room ever imagined beyond anything that Pharaoh had crafted for himself in life or death. And so on the outside, it's something that's not impressive. And on the inside, it's something that's perfect and pure and just phenomenally uh, lush and, and Lux. And this is like a really important kind of foreshadowing as well, because this is the opposite of what Jesus charges the Pharisees with who are the political party who are seeking revival through repentance and law-keeping in order to usher in the presence and return of God. And he comes to them and tells them that they are making everything clean on the outside, but on the inside they're rotten. And so everything you're going to see in Leviticus is laid out to see, okay, here's God, he's made himself one with us in an unimpressive way, in a mobile tent, in a tabernacle that's just just dirty and dusty and human and utilitarian and non-impressive, But when you go inside, what's in there is so miraculously beautiful. That's who God is. And of course, that's what gets picked up in John 1, 14, that uh, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And so he's unimpressive, just like us, made of the same stuff, living in the same dirty, dusty world, dealing with the same stuff. But on the inside was of a type and a sort that is unimaginably valuable. And then, of course, Jesus... Becomes the typification not only of the high priest and the Levites and the workers, but of every element of the furniture and furnishings and finishes of the tabernacle. He becomes the altar where sins are atoned for. He becomes the sacrifice for sin and for peace and for thanksgiving. He becomes the the cleansing spirit that is represented in the wash basin. He becomes the intercessor for the prayers of God's people that are pictured in the the rising of the incense he becomes the most holy place that that place where god and man and heaven and earth meet together you'll you'll see this happen in the description of the temple when it's to be built that 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 place that's represented in the tabernacle as the most holy place is described as being equal parts high wide and deep and so it's a cube the room itself is a perfect cube and then you'll notice in revelation when the new jerusalem comes down from heaven it's also described as a cube the only two places in scripture where anything's described in a perfect uh, square cube. Beautiful. And so there's a connection there between, okay, now God has made his dwelling place on earth. And you get that really incredibly fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But even for Jesus, he came to fulfill this work and then create um, an environment where the judgment of God's being held off the um, the call of repentance and faith in the kingdom of God is going out. All people are welcomed into his presence through the redemption that's in Christ. But eventually, he's going to come back in final judgment and be, be present with his people forever. And like, that's where this is going. This is the section that we're kind of drawn into. And so while it's very different for our ancient Near Eastern counterpart in 1500 BC, who are roving through the desert with this mobile t- tabernacle tent dwelling place of God— all of the component parts represent the same kind of environment that we're living in. It's just that Jesus is all those pieces and that we relate to him. And so we have been cleansed. We have been purified. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are being built like living stones to create a temple for God. This is where we are now a kingdom of priests unto unto the nations. And so all of those things are being fulfilled. And it's really fascinating if you're keeping up with them to start to see how they connect, even though they're very foreign to us in their descriptions and maybe somewhat boring, but not at all boring. And we could go on and on and on, but we've got to get through some of this material. I
1: love, I love that. Um, you can't see anything from the outside because of the curtains. Like you just get a glimpse. Uh, maybe you can catch the top of the covering of the tabernacle, but you can't see anything inside being on the outside like you have to go in and it's just like something just clicked in my brain when you were, were you talking about that. It's like, you know, we have the treasure inside of us. Yeah. of the, We're the earthen pot. And, you know, what do you see on the outside of us? You just We're just humans. Yeah. We're just here. And I was like, that's that a really interesting parallel that the treasure is hidden inside yeah. of the tabernacle and the treasure is hidden, Jesus, the spirit is hidden inside of us. And it's just like, it's really cool to like that, that, that Jesus has like, you know, his intention is to make us a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. So it's like bring people on the inside. That's, That's awesome. Cool.
0: It's one of the reasons I've been digging this new song, the throne room, if you've heard it, it just describes By charity girl. Yeah. 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 It's so beautiful. Just the idea of being like brought in and like coming like right into God's presence. And like, we get to encounter that all the time. And it's somewhat s- staggering to me. You know, we, the world in which we live, is so individualistic. And unfortunately, all of us, myself included, we're swimming in the sea of consumerism where we constantly judge everything by, do I want that? Do I have an appetite for that? Will that make me happy? Does that sound like fun? Depending on how old you are. And we're missing out on the fact that like, we are being invited into the presence of God daily in his word and by his spirit through prayer. And we have access in ways that our ancient Near Eastern counterparts had no access. We're talking about you may know the guy who gets to go in one time, once a year, you'll, you'll live and die and watch that tabernacle be set up and taken down. And you'll never see the inside of that one room, you know? And like, think about the disconnect and even for us gathering on Sunday mornings and encountering the Lord together. And God just loves to pour out his presence when, when we come together and we come together hungry. And so we have this opportunity as a nation of priests to like encounter God and create an environment where the presence of God is so powerfully tangible that people who don't know God and are far from him can sense it, even though there's not spiritual life occurring inside of them yet. And like, that is like just mind blowing. And I would just love to see people begin to understand just the profound nature of how we get to encounter the, the power and presence of God in this new covenant age.
1: Yeah. To think that like, you maybe know that priest that got to go in one time, but like God lives in you now and it's just like it, you think back to like Ephesians and like the people are the church like those are the building blocks of the church it's not a building like right. god, like everybody was mystified when god said yeah i'm going to build my temple and it's going to be people yeah like that like who who saw that coming
0: yeah <laughs> even when jesus said uh that, you know they were marking about the temple when he said it, i'm going to i'm going to tear it down in 3 days build it back up and they're like it took us 50 years to build this how are you going to build it in 3 days And then it says, but he was referring to his body. And of course, that's a direct reference to his death and resurrection. But then what's the euphemism that's picked up for the bride of Christ, the church, the flock of God? It's the body of Christ. Like He's building us up, and we're the space where he's interacting with the world. And that is so mind-blowing, and we treat it so trivially sometimes. And I would just love to see... I would just love to see God's people stirred for the reality and the beauty of how close we get to come and how frequently and the environments that we can create and interact with the Lord in our gathering places. And it doesn't mean that God's special at church or in some church building. It really is about the people of God. And I having, having been a part of Christ church now and having grown to three services, it's amazing how easily it is to distinguish a distinction between people who are coming in each service. And you can tell, There's people who are here who are hungry for the presence of God more than the last service. You know what I mean? And there's something really special about that. And I just want to see that cultivated in all people to have this expectation of encountering God and to see how valuable that is.
1: Yeah. I love to be surprised when you're like expecting something from a service and it actually happens in a different service.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not what you expected, but you can tell when people come hungry and open and desiring God, he always meets. I mean, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you, he says, and he means it, and uh, the the floor plan and the furnishings and the finishes of the tabernacle really draw that out for me, and so I was really blessed reading them this time, even though the first time I was kind of like, oh, that's weird and foreign and unusual, uh, but a little bit of research and you start to see, and we haven't even got to talk about the ark, and I'll give you a little forecast, so this blew my mind, this reading, and I, I wrote my Easter sermon already, and... It, it it happened when I'm looking at the fashioning of the ark, and I'm going to give you the little I'm going to give you the sneak peek. Uh, spoiler alert, okay? I love this, and I, I had to skip forward in my Bible when the cherubim are being described as the on the mercy seat of the ark. So the ark of the covenant is this box. It's made of acacia wood. It's overlaid in gold, and it's the presence of God. We're later told that it it perpetually contains two omers of manna the tablets, the second set of the tablets of the 10 commandments written with the finger of God and Aaron's budding staff. They're all in there. Now we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. You can watch Indiana Jones. You can figure out if you think you know where it is, when it, if it was destroyed, if it's hidden somewhere on the earth, who has it? Nobody knows, but it was for a period of time, the sign of the presence of God. And we're going to read that when we get into second Samuel and first Kings where the Ark is moving back and forth. And, um, Interacting with like Dagon and the Philistines, so that, that that motif of the presence of God. But if you look at the mercy seat, which is the the atonement cover, the word there is for atonement, and that's there's a there's a play on words with the word cover. So even Kofar, like in the uh, Ark narrative, the pitch that goes on the outside of the Ark is the is like almost the same exact word as atonement cover, and so like pitch and cover and seat, these these are all these words that carry this meaning. Of atonement, and of course, atonement comes through the sacrifice at the altar. But you're making your way in from outside to inside, and when you get to the presence of God, there's two angels sitting on the edge of this rectangle. And then I was reminded of the resurrection story, when Mary and Mar- or Mary Magdalene and the ladies walk into the tomb, and what do they see? They see an empty grave, which would have had a slab, a rectangular slab for a body, and at each end, the head and the foot is sitting an angel. And so you get this picture, this like arc-like picture of an empty tomb, and it and it's it, it's tied to the Ark of the Covenant, which is just crazy. So we're going to talk about a little bit about the, the presence of God, where it is and what it looks like now that Jesus is not in the tomb. Anyway, pretty cool stuff. Moving on. Got some great questions um, from a handful of people. Uh, Rebecca S. sent me some questions, really good stuff, out of a dense little section of Exodus in chapters 32, 33, 34. You definitely, like slow down when you get into these sections. If you haven't read this yet, you can skim through some of the laws that don't make sense to you. But when you get into this section of the golden calf and Moses's response and his intercession before God and the reinstitution of the covenant and the things that God says about himself, you got to slow way down these chapters and really take this in. Now, actually, before we get into that, um, the section preceding it, which you probably skimmed had a bunch of case law. Okay. So you get the 10 commandments and then you get Moses talking to God during those 40 days before Moses comes down to find the people dancing around the calf. And in that period of time, Moses is getting these descriptions of how these laws that God has just given apply in different circumstances. Now they may at first hit you like, okay, why would you, const- was this like, is this a thing that happened? Are we constructing like just hypothetical situations and then applying these scriptures to those hypothetical situations? So this is a a genre in the Old Testament that's called case law. And it's basically saying in this case, how how would the law be applied or what would justice look like in this environment? And so a lot of times these things end up being uh, misinterpreted as a justification for evil. For instance, there's a lot of case law that talk about what happens, like, for instance, when you're beating a slave. So let's just say you're beating a slave and then your slave dies. Oh, man, dead slave. What does justice look like in this instance? And the the law there is like, okay, that this is what you do if your slave is beaten badly, but then recovers. And this is what you do if the slave is dead. And you're like, can we talk about the slave thing for a second? Like, before we get into what happens when you beat him, like, should you be beating him? And is this like a justification for slavery? And of course, in the early history of America, when there was ethnic slavery, there was a lot of Christian people, Southern Baptists in particular, who use scriptures like this as a justification for slavery, as though it's something that's always been, will always be. That's not off limits. And it's just a matter of how you treat your slaves, not whether or not you have them. So I want to address that because anybody who's reading with a critical mind is going to go, well, hold on a second. sounds to me like the Bible is justifying polygamy and rape and premarital sex and slavery and violence against people. And and here's the thing. It's very important. Um, There is not an implicit approval of evil in these sections like rules for Hebrews. That is not what's going on there. In fact, most of the time you're going to get case law The case law is going to start in a less than ideal situation. In fact, it's going to be predicated upon a series of transgressions, but it's going to be speaking directly to a transgression that's three or four layers deep inside of the evil that already exists. And it doesn't mean, for instance, when you read a law that says, you know, if your second wife who's not your favorite has your firstborn son... You can't show favoritism to the firstborn of your favorite wife who has your third son. That's that's illegal. And you're like, okay, I get that. But why? Why do you have two wives? (laughs) You know, and so the 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 answer is like you shouldn't have two wives. But just because there's a case law that expresses an idea inside of an environment that's less than ideal or already predicated upon a transgression, it doesn't give a justification for that transgression. And that's a really important distinction to make. Otherwise, you're going to be like, man, this is really messed up. And then you start asking all kinds of wrong questions like, okay, why did God allow that then? And why are we not supposed to do that now? And then you start to come up with these frameworks that create this progression of God said it was okay for a while, but now we didn't. And that's not the case. In fact, a lot of the case laws and rules that you're going to read throughout Exodus and Deuteronomy is going to harken back to the very things the patriarchs were doing. For instance, you cannot... And you'll see in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 18, you cannot take your sister as your wife, but Abraham took his sister as his wife. And so you're like, okay, well, he shouldn't have done that. Well, he didn't have the law on the first, first of all, he didn't know that then that, but that was the thing that was done. But now that we have this revelation from God, he's saying for my people, you're not supposed to do that because there's this sacredness of human sexuality. And there's this, um, there's limits around who you can even be with. Yes, marriage is for one man and one woman in a covenant forever, and that's clear in Scripture. In fact, you're going to see some later prohibitions against polygamy, even though there's a lot of polygamy that's taking place, because people can, and they do, and God works in the midst of that anyway, but it doesn't mean that it's justified by the fact that there's laws that say, in this setting, this is what justice looks like. So the Bible's real gritty in dealing with life as it is, but it's also very specific about applying justice to a situation to make a point. So let me give you an example because I'm talking uh, ethereally. So let's see. What's one of the ones that I pulled up here? Oh, it's over here. So, one of the situations that I thought was super interesting was in Leviticus 18. Uh, you, yeah, yeah, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. And so, you got a lot of things going on here. You got polygamy going on here. You got what's called sororal polygamy, which is marrying sisters. But it's also a motive here that you're actually trying to maintain some control over your wife by creating a rivalry between her and another wife who is her sister. And so, there's some like manipulation that's going on here. But then, there's also like some implications on who you are sleeping with that is related. And so you'll see this, this uh, phrase uh, uncovering nakedness again and again and again and again. So there, this, this becomes actually a justification later in the Bible for completely removing polygamy. But it's something that we see ends up being uh, what Solomon ends up being judged for. He was the best king Israel had ever seen. It was the epitome of the, uh, the high point of Israel's history. But it said, uh, but Solomon loved many women. And so here's this weakness, the chink in the armor of Israel's best king. So there's there's a bunch of these different laws that take place. Another one comes to mind is about, uh, in, it's back in that Exodus section, where it says, if two men are fighting and a woman who's pregnant gets hit, and then she goes into early labor, but the baby's fine, then you're good. But if anybody dies, then it's tooth for tooth, eye for eye, and so, like, there's this. Okay, well, well, hold on a second. How frequently is a very pregnant woman being injured trying to break up a fist fight? Like, is this like an, a, a daily occurrence in ancient Israel? But no, it's not. It's a it's a contrived situation that allows you to p- apply God's justice and the value of human life into a pregnant woman. And so the the question then becomes, okay, what's the point? And the point is, even children in the womb are inherently valuable have dignity and and therefore their life should be protected and if you even through negligence cause the death of even an infant who's not yet born you will pay the price for that do you see like how powerful that is when you actually take it apart not from its case not from its hypothetical situation but its application of the law yeah
1: yeah i feel like all the um the case law is like god's revealing what his heart is in these examples, because our, you know, Jesus said the whole law is summed up in love God, love your neighbor. And if we had those characteristics and the aspects and the knowledge of how God does things, the way he does things, and we did things that way, right? Like we'd, we'd, uh, we'd be in, we wouldn't need the case law to to describe it to us right? because those things would be natural for us. We'd right. be like, Hey, yeah, I've damaged you. Let me repair that or make reparations towards the things that I've damaged, like one of the the things that I think about are um, if you borrowed somebody's ox in here and they weren't there and it died, it was your fault and you had to replace their ox. But if you, if you hired them and they brought their own ox and their ox died, it was their fault. Right. So you think about like modern day, like lawnmower, if I borrowed your lawnmower to cut my lawn and yep. it broke, I should fix it yep. and give it back to you how I borrowed it. But if you come over to cut my lawn and I'm paying you to cut my lawn and your lawnmower breaks, that's that's on you, you, right? (laughs) Like those things make sense to us. Right. And it's just like the heart God's like totally after the heart. But like the real question is what is God's heart and what does it look like? So I feel like he's like revealing it to us through all of these examples.
0: Yeah. And you're going to see this no more clearly than in Leviticus 19. So this is going to be in our reading and our podcast for next week. And so look for this dynamic because Leviticus 19, it, That has verse 18b, which is what Jesus cites as the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus identifies number one commandment of the 10 commandments from Exodus 20, most important commandment, and the second, which is like it, skip all the way ahead to Leviticus 19 and 18, which he pulls out of that verse, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, in fact, the whole law and all the prophets are summed up in these two words, and so when you get to Leviticus 19, you're going to see some, some of that case law stuff happen. In this situation, do this, don't do this. This is what's right. There's parts in there about restitution and adding 20%. And there's a lot in there about intent, motive versus happenstance. And it's one of the things that I love about reading the Old Testament. You, you read these and you go, well, if you, get, you can get away with a lot of stuff if you don't actually fess up to what only you know about. But you, if you don't, you're incurring guilt upon yourself and then upon the nation and you're a, you with your own individual contribution by not being made right with God through the systems that he's created and coming back into his presence you are you are actually partially responsible for leading the whole nation away from the presence of God and you'll see that verbiage in those laws especially in Leviticus
1: yeah. It's just like we when we were talking about the tabernacle, it's like not glorious on the outside, but it's glorious on the inside. And just like how we're not glorious on the outside, but we are glorious on the inside because he lives in us. Like, um, it, God's not after you to outwardly do the law. He's after the inward parts. Right. Like if you're, if you're, Hey, I didn't do this right. I need like, you know, your confession of needing help for him to come and change you. Yeah. Is like what what's glorious to him because he wants what's inside. He doesn't want the outside. It's the inside, and then the fruit that the inside produces is what he wants. Exactly,
0: and this is why everything changes from the inside out and not the outside in. So religion and laws, you can essentially clean the outside, but it will not clean the inside. But with Christ, the expression of all of that presence of God stuff and the law and the sacrificial system. You get the cleansing that brings you all the way in to the most holy place. And from that point forward, you can express the love of God that's been poured into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, Romans 5 5, and begin to live a life of love that's not put on from the outside, but that flows uh, from the inside out. And that's super, super, super important. Beautiful. So, one of the, I want to read two more sections with, before we're done. Uh, let's look at uh, what Rebecca asked about. In Exodus chapter 33, so Exodus 32 is where uh, the people, uh, when Moses is gone for 40 days, they make the golden calf, they're dancing around it. I talked about this on Sunday of how, how prone we are to make a cheap version of God that doesn't scare us and that doesn't judge us and then call it God and and then pretend that that's what's going on. When in fact, that's not who God is. God is on the mountain and God is furious and God is holy and pure and powerful and trying and moving towards us to invite us into a reality with him. So we don't want that substitute. And so there's some intercession that takes place and between God and Moses, and then God moves through Moses to continue to um, reestablish the covenant that Israel's just broken. So the covenant everybody signed up for 40 days, totally broken. And then God reinstitutes that. But in chapter 33 and verses 12 to 23, we get these two really cool sections that bring up the kind of last little set of um, issues I want to talk about. So verse 12 of Exodus 33 says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. So Moses understands he's being sent out, but he's not being led. Okay, so this is before the Holy Spirit, the the cloud, descends on the finished tabernacle, right? Because the people haven't responded. They haven't brought all their offerings. The, the spirit of, of these people hasn't stirred them to fulfill all of the, the design that was given to Moses. And so Moses is going to be sent out, but there's not a sense of being sent with. And so this is what he's getting at. I know you by name. You have said to me, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Again, that's that Hebrew word for grace. So God's showing grace towards Moses. Now, verse 13, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. So he's saying, listen, I want to know you. You've already shown me this favor, but I want to know you. And in order to know you, I need to know your ways. So I need you to give me a description of what it looks like to follow you. Of course, that's what, that's what happens next. That's what you're going to get in Leviticus. But look at what um, he says next. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And so he's pointing to the ownership God has of this people, not the quality or the behavior of this people, but the ownership. And he says, this is what God says. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are, and here's the word, distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. This Old Testament that we're reading, and especially going into Leviticus, is all about distinction. It's all about what's different. It's all about Holy, unholy, defiled, undefiled, clean, unclean. It's all about sick, whole, leprous, cleansed. All of these distinctions are going to be taken into place. But the main distinction is the presence of God with us. And all of the things we're going to read are about things that move us away from the presence of God and then how we are supposed to be returned to the presence of God. So you're going to be reading Leviticus with this in mind. What is the distinction between the godless? And those who have God, and what are the things that move us out of God's presence, and then how are we brought back into God's presence? And Leviticus is going to answer those questions with signs. It's not comprehensive. It's, here's a situation, consider the movement away from God, and then how to get back towards God. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This is the very thing, sorry, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses says, please show me your glory. Great question, Moses. You're right, spot on. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. This is, again, going back to Exodus chapter 3. Who do I say sent me? The Lord. That's the, you'll see in your English translation, capital L-O-R-D. So that's the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So this is God saying, this is his sovereign choice that he is pouring grace on Moses and his people because of his purposes. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by and then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And this is a picture of the most intimate exposure between God and man until Christ himself, of which the New Testament writers say that in the face of Jesus, we've seen the face of God. The veil is lifted. There's no more separation. We have the full manifestation and expression of God in human form. But in this particular instance, God and man are coming together and it's happening in the cleft of the rock. And I just think about the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And it's, again, just another picture of God's uh, unmerited favor, his mercy upon his people, the fulfillment of his purposes, the appointing of a leader, the anointing of that leader, the revelation of that leader. And then we're going to get this combination of just miraculous, powerful presence of God associated with that particular individual and pictures of their inability to be the perfect person that the world needs them to be. Ultimately, that's going to lead us to Christ, who is the perfect person, and through his life and death and resurrection. And by faith in his name, we're made one with him, joined with him uh, in in a union with him that is supernatural, the result of faith, and, and results in our being filled with his very Holy Spirit and to fulfill his purposes. And it just blows my mind as we consider the the era, the age of that we live in, where we're in the spirit age. Like I cannot think of a better period of time to be part of what God is doing in the earth aside from the glorified state itself than to be in this spirit age where we get to look back at all of the stuff that we're reading through, see its fulfillment in Christ, and then uh, through faith be joined with him and be recipients of his righteousness, clothed in, in his righteousness, completely forgiven and cleansed. And it brings us to this place of being able to be Uh, I think genuinely repentant, honest and vulnerable before God and in as much as we are loving one another, we can have a community where we can be as honest and vulnerable with one another and that's one of the challenges of community is that we get into an environment where we want to put our best version forward it's the, it's the social media effect. You know, we put our, you put a picture up of your profile picture and it's a wonderfully flattering picture of you, but everybody who knows you knows that's not exactly what you look like. You know, that's your best day, 13 and a half years ago from the best angle and in the best shape and the best lighting. But we do this thing in in community where we want to put that forward, but that's that outside in approach. And what we're seeing here is the inside out approach. It's, it's the way in which God dwells with us. And it, it, if we can come to one another, like, here's where I'm at, and find an environment where you're accepting and accepted, you can begin to experience some of the communal life that God intends for us. But it requires faith in God, some trust given to other people, and a willingness uh, to be vulnerable, to go, here is it is, what's on the inside. And what's on the inside of me before Christ is a mess, but he's made me whole, made me clean made me undefiled. He's changed me on the inside. Anything that's good that's there is because of what he's done. And now he is working from the inside out to bring uh, love and power and transformation into my life so that I am living distinct on the earth with him. And and that's just a, a beautiful picture that we can get right out of these Old Testament books.
1: Yeah. And I like just to go back to Moses asking to see the glory of the Lord, something that I've been like really meditating on or like going back to over the past four months just to go to read it is uh when when the lord does go by moses in uh the next chapter in exodus 34 6 then the lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the lord the lord god compassionate and gracious Mm -hmm. slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity transgression and sin yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Like, as God is passing by Moses, he could have said anything. Yeah. But, like, this is what he chose to say. Like, describing his character, compassionate and gracious, Mm -hmm. slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. You know, and even though he forgives, he's still righteous. He's going to judge those. Who who are not justified. Yeah. So it's just like like wow, like yeah. God's like you know, and what did Moses ask? He said, Show me your glory. Yeah. And like this is what God says. He's like, all right, you can see the backside of my glory. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and then I'm gonna call this out. Like I'm gonna proclaim yeah. this like as I go by. Yeah. Like he could have said anything, but that's like what God chose to say yeah. to Moses. And it also it also brings me back to uh like Psalm one fifteen one. Not to us, Lord. Not to us, but to your name, give glory yeah. on account of your uh, steadfast love, your chesed yeah. and your faithfulness. Like, yeah. so there it is again, your steadfast love and your faithfulness.
0: Yeah. One one of the um, emails I got this week from Natalie, she was asking, you know, if, if there's a key verse from each book of the Bible, what would it be? And then what would, wouldn't it be cool to memorize the key verse? You know, maybe, maybe, I mean, Genesis so jam-packed full of things but I think about Genesis fifty twenty. you know what you meant for evil God meant for good and like some paraphrase of that but you memorize one little verse and I think if you're looking at Exodus if you have in chapter 33 the Lord saying to Moses like I'm gonna he says show me your glory he says I'm gonna pass by you and I'm going to proclaim my name to you and then in verse 34 that's what he describes I mean wow it's, just, it's incredible I mean, that'd be, if there's something to memorize there, I think probably verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. I mean, saying his name twice, a God merciful and gracious in my translation, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And I think there's an intimation there at a footnote that maybe to the thousandth generation. And so here's God basically saying like, and thousand ends up being like perpetually in the, in the Bible, He's saying, I will not change. I will keep my, my steadfast love forever, essentially. And forgiving iniquity and sin. And again, you get this gospel through this, this um, there's this uh, dichotomy that's going on here that's right there in the name of God, of what he's proclaiming to Moses that maybe we should memorize. Um, he's saying, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so here you get the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the justice of God. And God does not offend his justice in order to be merciful. And this is a dilemma we as people have a really hard time with where, you know, we give somebody um, a hall pass and it seems like an injustice. Or if you hold someone to a standard, it can seem unmerciful. But in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you get perfect mercy and perfect justice because justice Justice is uh, doled out. It's just that Christ endures that punishment. And so there is justice that's met. God doesn't just clear the guilty. The guilt has to go somewhere, something has to happen to it. and Christ dies to absolve us of that so that He can be merciful to us. And like this is this is like a, a, a tension that's going to exist through the Old Testament that isn't really clear until we get this expression of the gospel. But then this all, also the concept of reality, God's character will not change visiting the iniquity of the father, the father's on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And I think this is one of the, again, one of those, um, reality verses. like your, your sin matters. Like the things that you do wrong is going to have implications, generational implications. If you, if you choose to be, you know, harsh or abusive, that is going to, that is going to detrimentally affect your children It's going to shape them in a way that's going to have an impact on their children, which is going to result in a fourth generation being impacted because of your sin. That's the real world that we really live in, that God's working through. The good news is he's faithful not just through four generations, but through a thousand generations. And everyone has access to his mercy and grace. And so like the good news is there's healing to be found. But a lot of us are living lives dealing with the failures of one or two or three generations back and having to deal with those implications. And that's just the world in which we live. And it's the world that God's redeeming us out of. And it makes sense of that. Like, yes, there are going to be repercussions, justice. And sometimes the penalty is going to fall to people who had nothing to do with that original transgression. That's part of the world we live in, but that's what God is coming to set all things right. And so whoever you are, all of us have our own guilt before God. All of us come from an environment where we have been the, the victim of abuse, but God can not only heal our brokenness, but he can also forgive our iniquity. But that only happens as we approach his steadfast love. And that happens in the place where justice and mercy meet. I think that would be the verse I would probably memorize from, from Exodus It'd be 34, uh, six and seven. That's powerful. All right. Um, that kind of wraps it up. It's an hour and 15 minutes. I did want to say one more thing though, and I'll keep this one brief. This was something that really uh, hung, up, hung up on me. We talked about um, the case law situation, but you're, all, you're also going to read in—I'm a little bit ahead of everybody, but when you get to Leviticus, specifically 27, and there, there is a redemption value placed on individuals who have made a vow, and the redemption value for men is higher than women, and the young is higher than the old— And a lot of times, um, especially for us Americans who are seeing everything through the eyes of equality and freedom, whether you are more on the progressive end of the spectrum or the conservative end of the spectrum, um, we are kind of uh, tuned in to notice inequality. And so I want to speak to anybody who read that and thought, well, it seems like God is saying women are inherently less valuable than men and old people are inherently less valuable than young people. And I just want to clear that up real quick because it's a very simple answer. And if you haven't read that yet, you're going to see it. And I want you to have the answer and the interpretive key before you get to it. So that pass, that passage, and others like it, which are doing different things, is specifically trying to discourage people from making rash vows. Okay? So that's the point. If you vow to God to do something, you had better do it. Okay? This is not something you take lightly. And so to discourage people from making rash vows, Leviticus 27 is saying, if you change your mind... This is what this is going to cost you, and it's a very high cost. Now, whenever we see monetary values in the scriptures, we can't connect to that because we have a very uh, small window on market values and the value of American cash right now, and even that changes over time. It's very hard to put an actual value, but you'll notice the distinction between the values based on age and gender. And so when you look at that and you go, it would appear from that cursory reading that that scripture is saying that some people are worth more money than others. That is not the case. Here's what the case is. In in an attempt to discourage people from making rash vows, a monetary value is put to the person who would have to pay to redeem themselves from out from under that vow and no longer be um, held by it. And that is going to be evaluated on the fair market value of your labor wage based on gender and age. And so you think about, okay, what can a man in this society earn in his lifetime? Versus what can a woman earn or contribute to society in her lifetime? And then based on how old you are, we're talking about marketable depreciation, um, what would that price tag be? And so the point is just using essentially fair market value to say, if you want out of this vow, here's what this would cost you. And
1: it reminds me of uh, when they collect the redemption money earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the same story. It's different though. He's like specifically for redemption money and everybody pays exactly the same, the same. price, rich and poor. Yeah. There's no distinction. Female, zero distinction. Right. Cause there's only one, one redeemer. Yep, that's So right. it's like everybody is worth the same in that redemption cost. Right. So just like to contrast that. It story. is
0: exactly, it's really, really important. Yeah. Because if you're looking for a scripture that's going to establish equality, of humanity, then there's tons of them because God's the one who actually does establish equality. But if you're going to see something where there seems to be a distinction, don't immediately get irate and think that and make a judgment about God saying that people are less valuable than others. That's not the case. In fact, the more you understand and apply these case laws and you look at the interpretive method for chapters like Leviticus 27, you're going to see that God is using the values of things like real market values to make a point. And so, yes, everyone is equally dignified and valuable to God. And we see that in the redemption cost, the shekel and, and, and how much left of your life you have and what that value is. You need to take into consideration before you devote your whole entire life to Levitical service. All right. Well, that kind of wraps it up. Thank you guys for interacting with us. Um, I got a bunch of preloaded questions for next week, uh, out of Leviticus and so, look forward to uh, reading through that with you. And again, no Sunday sermon coming up. If you're following with us in real time, it's Fifth Sunday Funday, so you will not see a Sunday podcast. The next podcast that'll be in the Christchurch Port Orange podcast feed is going to be next week's um, season one episode three binge the Bible, and we look forward to being with you then. Thanks for following.